You're listening to the Mining and Energy Union podcast. 130 years ago, a mining company in Tennessee sacked its workers, tore down their homes, and brought in prisoners to replace them. That kicked off what became known as the Coal Creek War. It's a great yarn, and it's just one tale from Kim Kelly's new book, Fight Like Hell, which tells the story of some of the toughest union activists from US history. She has a great chapter on mining, so I thought you might like to hear from her. She's on the line from Philadelphia. Kim, I was absolutely amazed at how coal mine bosses used convicts and African-Americans as a weapon against miners and their demands. Can you take us back to the Coal Creek War of the early 1890s? This was not a new thing, right? Black workers being forced to labor for nothing. That was In the U.S., we kind of made a whole tradition out of it. Mm. But after emancipation, when black workers were supposed to be freed... There was still this lingering urge by people in power, well, how can we make sure that these folks aren't able to actually enjoy full citizenship? How can we keep exploiting them? How can we keep squeezing labor out of these folks without having to actually pay them? And that led to a practice called convict leasing, in which people who are incarcerated at that point in time, predominantly black men, they were lent out to private landowners and to the state to work in various occupations. They didn't make any money from that labor. The people sending them out to those places made the money. And I mean, that's still something that exists in the U.S. today, but that's, that's a later chapter. So in the 1890s, uh, it, was, it was a pretty common practice to use uh, convict laborers, again, predominantly black men, to break strikes. There's a long history in the U.S. of black workers being brought in to break strikes kind of across the board. But specifically in that context, we saw black workers being brought in to work in the coal mines when other coal miners, who predominantly Eastern European and European-descended white men, were on strike, which did not you know, do, do a lot of good for race relations in that particular sphere. But in the Coal Creek War, the Tennessee Coal Mining Company was not playing nice with the miners in Bryceville, Tennessee. They shut down the mine and they tore down the miners' homes and they built a stockade with those materials to house a group of incarcerated black workers that they brought in to break the strike and to work the mine. And the the 300 miners who had been laid off, who were at the heart of this conflict with the company, they weren't very happy about all that. And so once those incarcerated laborers were brought in, the striking miners rushed the stockade, they freed everybody, and they put those workers on a train headed out of town. Like They basically were like, not only are you trying to mess with our bread and butter, trying to mess with our strike, you're also trying to make these folks do our jobs for no money. Like They were not, they're just not down with it. And so that, that happened, they, they kind of entered into this, almost funny game of cat and mouse where the the coal bosses would bring back incarcerated workers, put them up at a new stockade. The miners would set them free, put them on a train out of town, back and forth, back and forth. Basically, this went on for a while. And I think uh, almost, uh, almost 200 of those incarcerated workers managed to escape during all the confusion. That, that was one moment in a longer conflict, but it did do a little bit to strike a blow against convict leasing in Tennessee, 
which actually ended up being one of the first southern states to abolish that practice in 1896. So shout out to those angry miners for burning down the stockade. Yeah, we think we got it bad today. That is uh, incredible stuff. Look, I want to talk about Warrior Met uh, and what's still going mm. on today in a second, but can we just mm. quickly talk about some of the women who are involved in this um, same area, in the in the coal fields, because there's some really interesting personalities. Tell me a bit about Ida May Stoll. Ida, she's one of my favourites. And I talk about her a lot when I talk about the book because she is just such a perfect example of the sorts of stories that I wanted to include in this book. Because she wasn't a labour leader. She wasn't even part of a union. I don't even know if she would have joined if you asked her. She was just a fiercely independent worker who basically made an imprint on history purely by refusing to be told what to do and to bow to the boss and to uh, to get back in the kitchen, which is what was suggested she do, which I'm sure a lot of us have heard throughout our lives, especially those of us who are not dudes. Um, so I really love her story. So basically, I <laughs> Those of us so. who are not dudes, I love uh, that way of describing it. Uh, you, you're, yeah. quite, you're quite right. I, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I just... She was actually, and of course this is a different time, we're talking about the 1930s, but she actually not only was a minor and used to help her dad and then worked alongside her husband later, she was actually a part owner of a mine in Ohio. That was, And that is the key to her story. Ida May still, like you said, she, she grew up in a coal mining area, coal mining family, followed her dad into the mines. She grew up to be, you know, kind of a, a big, strong, tough lady. They, they later in newspaper reports referred to her as the Amazon of the coal pits, which of all the nicknames, that's, that's a great one. But sure she, she became a part owner of a small drift mine outside of Sio, Ohio, where she lived. And that would come back to be, play a big part in her story, because at, at that point in time, there were laws on the books in Ohio saying that women, the so-called weaker sex, were not permitted to perform heavy labor, mining being one of those industries under that umbrella. And so Ida Mae Stoll, she was going to work, she was mining tons of coal, she was minding her business, and federal mine inspectors showed up, and I think it was 1934, so told her, you got to get out, no girls allowed. And she's like, well, I'm going to take you to court then, because this is ridiculous. I'm better at this than a lot of the guys doing this. I have more muscle than you, federal mine inspector. Like she loved a, she loved a quip. She was, she was salty, and she, they, she went to court and she won because she had that stake in that mine as a mine owner. They couldn't kick her out, and she went back to work because even though coal mining was and still is a really hard job, really difficult and dangerous and dirty, that's what she wanted to do, and she was not interested in having anyone say, you know, just because you're a woman, you can't do this. Her response is, well, the hell I can't. Watch me. And she she kept going until she decided to retire. And she died at, like, the ripe old age of 80-something. 80, 80 but she was kind of... She's become almost a little bit of a, a lesser-known folk hero. Like, people talk about her as the first female coal miner, which, of course, isn't historically accurate, but she was definitely one of the loudest. I love that when the mines inspector came... She'd saved up all these rotten eggs and she, she hit him with all these eggs and chased him out of the mine. And then when he got in his car, she, she, um, she got plenty of hits on the car as well. I think she said something like, I knew he was coming to put me out, so I put some rotten eggs in my coal cart. I started throwing and chasing the inspector out of the mine to his car and covered the car besides. I really stunk him up. 
So she sounds, <laughs> as you say, to use your term, uh, like a salty character. Uh, awesome. <laughs> hey, listen, Kim, talk to us a little bit about Mother Jones uh, while we're talking about salty non-dudes. Um, she was uh, <laughs> she was the real deal too. She's, I mean, she's the inspiration behind the title, of course, Fight Like Hell. But much more importantly, she was just, man, I, she's one of those people that I love to tell people that don't know that much about labor history about to get them interested. Because she's just, she's still this larger-than-life character that inspires so many people. And her story, even on a personal level, was so intense. Like, she was a immigrant from Ireland who worked as a seamstress and lost her entire family in a yellow fever epidemic and kind of rebuilt her life in her 50s and 60s when most women at that age weren't expected to really do much of anything, let alone travel the country organizing coal miners and giving speeches. Um, but that's what she did. She became involved with the Knights of Labor, and then she became an organizer with the United Mine Workers of America. And she was also involved in co-founded IWW. She was involved in so many different strikes, and she was kind of everywhere. She would be rallying the the troops of labor here or in prison here for, you know, rallying them a little bit too hard. She was also very involved in the fight to end child labor in this country, which unfortunately is an ongoing issue, but at that time was very much uh, kind of in the, the public eye. She led the, they called it the March of the Mill Children. She led a procession of hundreds of mill children, workers, to the president's house. They passed through Philadelphia, where I live. There's actually a marker at City Hall. She was just this this fiery, uh, just impossible to intimidate presence who really loved the workers and had no problem sitting down in a bar room with them and swearing a blue streak and yelling at politicians like, I can only wish that Jeff Bezos or Howard Schultz or any of these current Gilded Age billionaires we're dealing with in this country had to sit down across from Mother Jones because she would have torn him a new one. She's just one of those labor icons that really deserves it. You know, she I, I get more into it in the book, but she was she was a really important presence. And it was really and she did a lot of work organizing women, too, and was very clear about the fact that women had a very important role to play in labor battles. And it, again, did not just belong in the kitchen. Yes, uh, she certainly sounds like a welcome guest speaker on a picket line somewhere. (laughs) Um, Look, I want to just move on from women in the industry because there's some absolutely horrible stories, uh, you know, peepholes in in washrooms and um, outrageous, um, other outrageous, um, but people can discover that for uh, themselves. Uh, all they've got to do is buy the book, and it's a great book, and the chapter on uh, coal mining is fantastic. Let's just finish off, though, and talk about the Warrior Met dispute. You might just yeah. give us a little bit of a sense of the background of it, because These guys really are, uh, well, bastards is the word I want to use in the sense that, you know, there was sort of a a deal done, you know, we'll help you get back in the black. And then um, Warrior Met welched on that deal. Uh, Can you tell us the history and and give us an update of where we're up to now? I actually, I just got back from Alabama. I was there last week. I've been, I've lost track of how many times I've been down there. It's not, uh, it's not close. I live in Philadelphia, but I've been going back and forth to cover this strike for the past 18 months. And the Cliff Notes version, the short version, is like you said, there's a coal mine in rural Alabama, in Brookwood, 
about 45 minutes outside of Birmingham called the Worrimet Coal Mine. Before this company, Worrimet, came in five years ago, it was owned by Jim Walter Resources. And they had a good contract. People generally, it, it was pretty, pretty good deal. Things were fine, more or less. And then the company went bankrupt, so I guess they weren't that great. But <laughs> this company came in and they told the workers, okay, we need to get on our feet. We need, you know, a little bit of time to, to establish ourselves. Here, take this this crappy union contract we're going to offer you. But in five years, when it's time to renegotiate, we got you. We'll we'll give you a better contract. We just need a little time. And of course, those workers that you know began working there, they'd just been laid off in the bankruptcy. So it's like, okay, yeah, well, that seems like a decent deal. Five years isn't that long, but five years later, like you said, came time to negotiate. The company showed up with just a garbage deal. Some of the, the folks down there told me basically it looked like the last contract with a couple words changed. It was an insult. And so the miners went on strike. Over a thousand people. It's a multi-gender, multi-racial workplace. I think actually that uh, local or like that district of the UMWA is one of the most diverse ones in the country. So it's not just a, a stereotypical white guy in a hard hat situation. There's a lot of different folks who are out on those picket lines. And they've been out there for 18 months. They've had to weather just the general stresses and, and pressures of being on strike. I think 80% of those folks are parents. So there's entire communities and families impacted by this. The companies refuse to come to the table. They have been dealing with violence from scabs and company goons who have been running into them on the picket lines. There's been fights. There's, there's been a lot of stuff going down there that's pretty nasty. And they haven't gotten very much media attention for this strike. Like here and there, there have been some spotlights, but by and large, they've kind of been on their own. They've been depending on community support, support from um, organizations like the DSA and other labor groups. Uh, there have been a number of labor leaders who have chipped in and been trying to, to call attention to the cause, but they basically have just been out there this whole time. This is not a wealthy area. These are not people that, you know, can just allow themselves to be starved. They've built up a lot of resources. They've built up a mutual aid network where they have a pantry and they do donations to make sure people have, you know, diapers and food. It's They've kind of built up this whole strike world to keep themselves going because it's kind of what well, obviously the UNWA supports them and has committed I think I think they've spent about 23 million dollars so far by paying strike benefits and health care benefits and keeping this strike going it's wild like uh there's all sorts of nefarious things happening too with the company they've been hitting the strikers with various injunctions trying to whittle away the picket lines for a couple months the miners were not allowed to pick it at all. They set up all these really bogus trespassing charges, and they're, they're, there's been a lot going on. It's kind of hard to condense 18 months into a soundbite, but these guys are really part of this this fighting legacy of coal miners in America who are fighting for their union and for their families and for their own dignity and safety. And it's a shame they haven't been getting as much attention as they deserve, but... I've been doing my best to call attention to it. Like, they're in my book. I've written about them a lot. I'm sure I'll be back down there. And one thing that killed me a little bit when I was writing this book, there's there's a section on their strike. I, I was hoping by the time I turned in the manuscript, it would be over and they would have won and I could tie a little bow around it. But that's not the case. I was just there last week seeing seeing my friends on the picket line and they're still 
out there. It's the longest strike in Alabama history. One of the longest coal mining strikes in American history. They've outlasted Pittston and a bunch of the other big ones. And it's all happening in this deeply... Well, the, the government of Alabama is very conservative. And it's very anti-union, very anti-worker, very anti-poor. It's a difficult place to be part of a union and to be a worker to begin with. And to be launching this strike and keeping this strike going has taken an absolutely Herculean level of effort. And uh, I have to actually I have to shout out, we were chatting about him earlier, the head of one of the mining unions in your neck of the woods came out to their convention in June and came with a donation and, and showed up to show some solidarity. So this is kind of a worldwide struggle in a way, right? Like what these folks are fighting for is what every worker is fighting for. And I honestly, I just can't wait for the victory party because it's long past due. Kim's right. That victory party really is long past due. And she's dead right on another thing also. Queensland District President Steve Smythe was at the United Mine Workers of America National Convention in June, and he presented a cheque on behalf of all Australian MEU members to those miners on strike for over 18 months at the Warrior Met Mine in Alabama. Now, don't forget to grab Kim Kelly's book, Fight Like Hell from the Internet, Google it, get your credit card out, it's worth it, it's well written, a great fast-paced read, and you'll meet heaps of heroes in its pages. Well, that's the end of another episode of the MEU podcast. Remember, if you'd like more information on the Mining and Energy Union, head to our website, meu.org.au, or search on Facebook for Mining and Energy Union. Talk to you next time.